Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today I spoke with a close friend, Lucy Collinson from the Francis Crick Institute, about the importance of failure. Don't worry about the failures as well. You will fail as part of your career and you will fail to stand up on a surfboard. Speaking at conferences. Yeah, I used to feel sick for a week before a talk. And the Eurovision Song Contest. And we wonder why we never get any votes at Eurovision. (laughs) All this in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole and today I'm joined by Lucy Collinson from Francis Crick down in London. Lucy, hello. Morning Peter, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I think the first time we met was Elmi, I think. Yeah, Elmi in Nervin, which was my yeah. first Elmi meeting and I have to say it's one of my favourites. It's a really yeah, well, good I can meeting. see why you met me there. Well, <laughs> yeah, that, let's leave it at that. Uh, no, let's not. Because <laughs> that, that, that meeting for me was also very memorable for good, well, yes, all sorts of reasons. Uh, but I think the most obvious one is, A, I, I think it was Sander who introduced us, was it, at the time? Uh, yeah. And, and I was talking to Sander about a potential grant application and thoughts about it. And he said, well, I, I know just the person who, who, who would do this better than I could do it, uh, which was yourself. And that, that's how we introduced, I, I believe. Yeah, I kind of, I remember you guys walking across the uh, the hallway in the middle of the university, very purposefully with uh, with your grant ideas, and it sounded yeah. really exciting. And me going, yeah, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. And then five weeks later, we submitted and we got the grant funding, which is pretty much unheard of. Yeah, and significant as well. I think it's my largest grant I've yeah. ever been awarded. Uh, yeah, mine, so. mine too. And I think with contributions, it was close to two million pounds, I think. Yeah, that and, uh, we bought a new scanning electron microscope with it. Um, we turned it into a, a microscope within a microscope with Delmic, which is, is kind of cool and started a lot of research for us on microscopes in microscopes. <clears throat> which, yeah, within five weeks. And actually, I think the backbone of the application was actually developed on the dance floor. <laughs> or around the bar of the conference banquet. I mean, there there wasn't much food, was there? But there was plenty of wine and plenty of beer. And I've never seen a group of people dance like the Elmi participants. <laughs> it was it was excellent. Yeah, I think that I think that the, the most surprising thing is that we remembered the backbone of the grant application in the morning because <laughs> it was yeah. a long evening. In the end, I, I was expecting it to finish much earlier, and it went on and on. <laughs> It might have been a different grant application than the one we came up with that day, <laughs> but we got it. So, yeah, I, I think it was the simple ideas and just, you know, what, I think maybe the, it was a five week turnaround, but it was almost obvious. Yeah. And, and yeah. they're quite often the most successful and the ones you don't have to think about too hard. Yeah. I just thought it fell into place. A lot of long hours putting it together, though. Yeah. But that's that's not a bad thing when it's exciting and when you when you know what you want to do and it fits with a grant call. 
and like you say, it just comes together. So, so a lot of that was around correlative lighting electron microscopy, which is where you really forged your name and obviously for 3D EM and volume yeah. electron microscopy. So that, that grant application was obviously a, a highlight, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. What about the low? I, I think this is probably going to be similar. What, what have you found the most challenging times in your career? Um, the, the other grant that didn't get funded, the first big grant proposal that we put in, um, and it was, I love the acronym still, and I was umming and ahhing about whether to, to say the name of it because I don't want anyone to nick it, but it's so good. So we called it iVoxel, um, which is imaging volumes with x-rays, electron and light. It's so good. It's so good because it's all in 3D, so it's all voxels. Um, and that was with uh, Jemima Burden at UCL and Andy Bushby at Queen Mary, who runs the Nanovision Centre there, he's a material scientist, and Rafa Kartzenega, who's deputy head of my facility now, but she was at Imperial College. Um, and the idea was to have a virtual network of volume electron microscopes. And that was pretty early on before we even called them volume EMs, um, so serial block face SEM and photodiode beam SEM. And it would be open access so that people could send their samples in and run them. And it was probably about I don't know, 12, 12 years ago, something like that. And we didn't get it. And it was the first big failure. And I was so frustrated. And it, honestly, you know, when you see something and you can, you can tell it's good and you know it's going to be beautiful and it doesn't get funded. Um, and ironically, now we're just putting together the pretty much similar thing for a UK infrastructure for volume EM, however many years later, but the technology is much more mature and the, there's a much bigger community. And I don't know, it feels right. So, so fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, pl plug it, plug it quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean that that whole community has moved on significantly. As you said at the start, volume EM wasn't really a a word, it was a sentence. No. Um, word, yeah. Sentence phrase maybe the better term to use it but you've obviously forged your name in volume em uh, throughout that but you i've got to start that so that didn't exist uh, as a technique when you started electron microscopy but when was the first your first contact with an electron microscope when was that um ooh. so that was the last year of my phd my phd was in microbiology um and actually microbes aren't that interesting to look at but at the time i was isolating doing lots of biochemistry and isolating enzymes and um, running them on gels and after three years of bans on gels my boss recommended that i give my bacteria to the electron microscopy facility um which i did and then you get a picture back and it was like oh. <laughs> suddenly you can see what you're looking at. And I mean, it's not very, very interesting looking at a gum disease bacterium as there's, there's not much inside it. Um, but each of the postdocs I applied for contained electron microscopy. I'm not sure that it was, you know, I did it on purpose. It obviously caught my attention. So what year was that? 98. Ooh. Okay. So <laughs> Yeah, that was your first electron microscopy. You then went on to use electron microscopy more extensively straight after that? Yeah, so I ended up doing a postdoc at 
UCL at the Laboratory of Molecular Cell Biology in Colin Hopkins' lab. Um, and I didn't really have the background for it. Oh, there we go. That's my leaving do. So that's around 2004. 2004. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so the picture we just put on, uh, yeah. so I presume just above my head. Yes. So yes. Just above your head is Colin. Um, and Colin uh, is a cell biologist, um, researches into membrane trafficking. And at the time, he was quite unusual because he had his own light microscopes and his own electron microscopes in the lab. So I was taught and got to use the, the electron microscopes as fundamental parts of the project. But I also had to learn what a cell looked like because I had no idea because I'd been looking at bacteria. So I didn't know what a nucleus was or mitochondria or endoplasmic reticulum or <laughs> any of that good stuff. It was a very, very steep learning curve. But that photo is really interesting because there's a, there's a whole kind of, I guess, progeny of the lab that have gone out and run EM facilities around the world. So on your left, as I'm looking at you, Matt Russell is now a member of the EMSTP. Um, and on your right, um, also Berninghausen runs a cryo-EM facility in Munich and Jemima Burden uh, runs the facility at BLMCB. So a lot of good electron microscopists came out of that lab. And you haven't changed much at all. Oh, you, you can tell the era by the hair colour <laughs> and the amount of time in lockdown by the, the grey hair. <laughs> then through grey. I just keep cutting my grey off. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I get my son to do it much better. Yeah, I wouldn't dare touch my own hair even. It's quite good. That nearly an end though, so hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. So that, so that was your PhD. That was doing your postdoc days. And then what was your next career step? Um, I then, so there weren't that many electron microscopists around and you tended to find that you got lent out to other labs to do their electron microscopy for them as part of a collaboration. So instead of, after three or four years, instead of having my own postdoc projects, I was working on three or four different projects in collaboration with other labs. And I preferred that. I, didn't really enjoy just working on one project and getting really deep into it. Um, so I bumped into Dan Cutler in a lift back at UCL at the LMCB where I'd started my postdoc, Collins Lab had then moved to Imperial. Um, and he told me that the person who was running their facility was leaving. And um, I said, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting job. And a couple of months later, I, I took over running that facility and it was just me just me and two uh, electron microscopes and 20, 26 groups. Um, and only a couple of them were using EM when I started. And um, I think, I don't know, about 10, 10 or 12 of them were using EM by the end. But I, I had to train everybody at that point because I was the only person there, so I couldn't do that amount of work. And that, that was a lot of fun, training people and, and working with people. That, that's so, hey, that's a lot of people that's a lot of that's that's almost a third of the department or more than a third of the department using the electron microscope which is which is pretty rare i think even today to get such a large cohort as a percentage using the electron microscopes uh, any idea of what it is at crick at the moment uh yeah we have so at full capacity we'll have around 100 research groups there 
and at the moment I think is about 1995 we're working with around 60 of them so it's, it's not that people don't have a need for EM but I think most of them are put off because um, it's not something they're taught to do hands-on because the sample prep is really complicated and ultramicrotomy cutting cutting ultra thin sections is is very time consuming to learn and and you have to have a particular type of temperament and you can't drink too much coffee oh yeah actually yes it's it's early and relatively early in the morning for you oh yeah uh, I, the one thing I, I was warned about very early on by yourself was yeah. that in the first thing in the morning <laughs> not necessarily the early so I, i've got a picture of your lab here and they're all wearing hard hats and they ensure me they only wear that between nine and ten o'clock in the morning in case I bump into you. Is that um, true? Yeah, it's only fair to warn people that I'm not on my best before ten o'clock in the morning. I remember uh, the, the only exception early on was if I was giving a talk because um, I used to get really, really nervous about giving talks and I would panic for about a week beforehand. So I would ask to be on first just so I could get it out of the way. And my first big talk was at the Society of Electron Microscope Technology in London. And I was on at nine. So it was a very fine balance between, you know, not being with it because it was too early in the morning for me, pre 10 o'clock, um, and getting the talk over and done with. And then the uh, projector broke down on me. So it kept overheating. It would turn itself off every 45 seconds. And I was talking about some work we'd done with uh, correlative light and volume EM on zebrafish, looking at uh, blood vessels growing. So I had to mine <coughs> anastomosis, which is blood vessels growing and then fusing. So, it, you know, maybe it's good if it's early and you don't have too much time to think about it. So you're a lot more chill now. <laughs> which, yeah. If you caught any of your staff with their boots. Yeah on one of the EM tables, you would go nuts. Absolutely. I your warranty as well, by the way, sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I knew I shouldn't have been doing that, but that is a look of absolute relief because that was the uh, first microscopes on site at the Crick after eight years of planning and five years of building. Um, and that those microscopes had been on, on the back of lorries across London and, and into a new site. So. I wiped it down afterwards. <laughs> well, it's an exciting time though to take up the new the new role at Crick and move through. We already regretted moving out of being a pure academic and that type of route and taking more of a core facilities and leaving the core facility there. No, never. I, I it wasn't for me the the traditional route through science. I, I didn't have my own research question, um, but when I started using electron microscopes it, and light microscopes, it was the technology that really interested me and excited me, and, and it was pushing the technology forward to be able to answer the, the biology that really motivates me. I guess one of the difficult things that you'll have experienced as well is when, because we're pretty much the same age, so when we started in core facilities, it was a non-traditional career. Um, and people tended to think of you as a, a failed scientist. And actually looking back, it's changed. We've had some very dynamic people going into core facilities and, and really building them up and 
and driving it as a real career and as technology gets more complicated so you need people who have a you know a background in biology or materials or physics or whatever to, to make these things run for particular applications but and it has changed quickly and i think now a lot of the researchers that we collaborate with see us as understand that we're scientists with similar backgrounds to them we've just gone off in a different direction but it it's not completely plain sailing i think yeah i, I you're right I, I our posts are clearly not academic in the normal term of academic posts we don't need research groups purely research groups but i think it's fair to say that we have quite a large influence over the research going on uh, at the institutes universities and even our own teams are academically minded in some cases and driven. I think you're probably one of the leading examples of how in a non-academic post, you are very academic still. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> and, and I think there's a, a delicate balancing act from having your own research interests and also which, which is technology advancement more than answering a biological question. Cause I think it's fair to say similar to myself, you're a technologist interested yep. in advancing the technology for the users and then also being how keeping that balance that our teams are still service orientated i think that's yeah but i don't i'm allergic to the word service as soon as you say service people think that they can just bring you a sample and give it to you and say i want a pretty picture for the end of my paper and actually what we do is you know you have to collaborate they have to put the effort in and tell you the whole story behind their research and and you know what they want to see and therefore what resolution you need and which probes you need to get into the samples and how you're going to prepare them and you know there are as many different correlative workflows as there are research projects so everything is custom designed for research yeah i think i i, I know from some of our side i, I do see us as a service uh, at york for some some instances but it's pretty routine turn handle uh, get results out but not in all cases clearly not in all cases and they're the ones i actually i think the team and myself enjoy both sides of that uh i, I don't i don't think service is a dirty word i, I think we're still serving it's we're still part of their team we're still adding value we're still going to be inputting into their research but at a different level i think it's that that extra level and taking it beyond what they've come and asked for and that's certainly what you've been doing in a significant way i think uh, citizen science is just one example of that, of how you've, you've got a problem for users and you've taken those problems and moved it forward. Uh, you found a solution. So I think this backdrop is from what, Lucy? So I've got a, a very icy picture here. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Chicago last year in March. Um, it's really cold in Chicago in March. Uh, we just missed the the deep freeze, but that's looking out from the meeting room at the Adler Planetarium um, over the lake, which was completely frozen. And um, I guess, yeah, the reason we have a citizen science project is because of microscopes like this. This is our focus. That's your Gemini too. Um, it's the 540 crossbeam 540. Uh, which is the focused iron beam scanning electron microscope. So we have our cells and tissues embedded in resin. We use the iron beam to mill away very thin slices, five or 10 nanometers. And then you take an image and then you mill an image, mill an image. And we can collect thousands of images in a week. Um, and milling at that scale 
even to image through an entire cell, just one entire cell would be say three to 5,000 slices. So then your, your data is up in the terabyte regime and we just can't analyze the data quickly enough. So you can't extract all the meaning from it. A 2D slice doesn't tell you very much, but if you can um, convert that into a 3D model of the cell with all of the organelles, then you can start to be quantitative and compare between health and disease. Um, so we were a bit stuck and uh, we have the EM side of the team who are working on research projects and then we have the microscopy prototyping side run by Martin Jones who's a physicist and Martin and his team build new hardware and software. So it's actually Martin's idea um, to go to citizen science because now we're in the era of machine learning. I'll just Martin. Just Martin, picture of. <laughs> I'll tell you what he's holding in a second. Um, so now that we're in the era of machine learning, what you really need to train computers to recognize organelles automatically is ground truth, which is normally means us experts sitting in front of a computer and drawing around, say, the nuclear envelope in thousands of slices. So it takes a week together. to get the data set? Uh, yeah, in FIB, yeah. And then how long for that expert to analyze that data, to, to, to draw around it and make a 3D volume of it? So just for the nuclear envelope, um, which is the membrane surrounding the nucleus. Oh, lovely image of that. Down, and that's also what uh, Martin's holding that's lit up in red. Um, that would take another week. And that's just one structure inside the cell. That's in, you know, not even thinking about the other organelles like mitochondria, Endoplasmic reticulum, Golgi, etc., etc. Um, I'm still impressed. So, it's only a week to, to actually do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys in the lab are really good, but that's one cell, one yeah. week working on nothing else, and it, you know, you're very long. Statistically, week. not very robust. Yeah, statistically insignificant. <laughs> um, so we. Through Martin's original idea, we collaborated first with CRUK and then with the Zooniverse, which was set up by Chris Lintot in um, Oxford. And he uses citizens or the general public to um, help him classify galaxies. And his project went, so this is back in about 2008, and his project went so well that uh, Galaxy Zoo, his original project became the Zooniverse and the Zooniverse now hosts a huge number of different citizen science projects and we had one of the first biomedical projects asking the general public to, to do, do this drawing and to reconstruct organelles for us. So this one and the one that Martin's holding is the first nucleus that was completely reconstructed by the general public. And can you trust the general public to, to draw and annotate it properly? Well, I always said no. I always said you had to have 10 years uh, experience looking at EM images to, to be able to understand them and interpret them. And I was completely wrong. <laughs> you've, got, you've got that audio recording of me saying I was completely wrong now. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, it turns out that you give, give them a, a few short instructions and, and people do a pretty good job. We get some graffiti. Um, some of which we can show and some of which we can't. Um, but Martin and Helen Spears, who's uh, from the Zooniverse, who's seconded to us, who's their biomedical lead, and our digital development team at the Crick are able to automatically remove the graffiti. They've designed algorithms to 
pick out the right line from all of the different citizen science annotations um, and then train the first machine learning algorithms, so the papers, almost ready to bioarchive, which is really exciting. It's actual latest research then. Yeah. <laughs> how, many, how many citizens? So just, just Joe Public, just, you know, these aren't scientists necessarily, these are uh, no. hired people in many cases. Yeah, we, you, you get to know, so there are chat boards on the site, so you get to know some of your citizen scientists. And um, early on, one of the people we went through the entire data set that we put up um, really quickly was a, a grandmother in the US who'd broken her ankle. And so she didn't have anything else to do. So she, she did all of the images and then asked for some more. And wow. uh, we, have, we have schools doing it. Um, we... I've just been asked by a couple of people for references for medical school for their contributions to the project. So, and, and it's building. So we now have a mitochondria project out. We're working on an ER project and, and um, then we'll hopefully start putting up some really kind of cutting edge quick research on there um, and pushing forward into virtual reality as well. Cause at some point we're going to have to visualize these things and turn them around and start to understand their 3d shape and structure and what that means in biological terms so how many volunteers have inputted so far it's on the on the first nuclear envelope project it was around five thousand and we had wow. around one hundred and fifty thousand lines drawn that's and that's actually that's actually quite quite a low number for the zooniverse so they they have about i think a million and a half two million volunteers who interact with their platform um, but a lot of those projects are saying yes or no to, to questions, whereas ours, people actually have to sit down and really interact with the data. So there are, there are fewer people. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe as word gets out and it passes around more, I think the importance of what they're doing is huge. I mean, this is, this is them volunteering and helping solve very difficult questions, which ultimately aids cancer research significantly. Yep. Uh, I guess that gives them a sense of reward, but just looking at your image, which looks like a load of fabric web. So I guess it is a uh, virtual knitting in a way. <laughs> well, maybe that's the next uh, public engagement project. Maybe we'll get somebody to crochet a nucleus. <laughs> <laughs> we can have a whole, I think they did that up in Scotland, one of the institutes I visited. I think they, they knitted a cell or something which was in the middle of their atrium. Wow. So, so this is going to be published soon? Yes. Uh, uh, well, bio-archived. <laughs> I'm, I'm now going to ask you a difficult question. It's, and I'll, I'll allow you two if you can't think of one, but what is your favourite or fa most favourite publications that you have been part of? Uh, a difficult question. It's usually the most recent one. Okay. Every paper has a huge amount of effort from, from the guys in the lab. Um, so the, our most recent one is with Eva Frickle and Serge Mustavi from um, Birmingham and Imperial College, looking at toxoplasma parasites in zebrafish brain, um, using zebrafish as a new model to study the infection. And Mary Charlotte in the lab has just done some incredible correlative light in the M in 3D. And, you know, we're lucky we have, we have a whole range of microscopes so we can pick and choose them as we need for the, the biology. 
So she's used, this is real needle in the haystack thing. So it's whole zebrafish brain with these tiny parasites in. Um, so she's used x-ray imaging to locate them. There's um, really beautiful fluorescence imaging of the parasites and macrophages. And then we have serial section TEM, focused iron beam SEM and serial block face SEM of around 40, something like 40 different parasites. So it's, it's I guess, the beginning of our volume EM work was back looking at uh, blood vessels and angiogenesis with Holger Gerhardt's lab, again in zebrafish, and that was the coarsest correlation, but it was all we could do at that point. And the most recent zebrafish paper is, I think shows how far we've come in the last 10 years or so. So where was that published? That's a really good question. It's on um, BioArchive, but it's just been accepted. Um, okay. I need to double check the journal. I'll, I'll give you a plug. The opportunity <laughs> no. to plug your paper, increase that pack pattern. I know. I know. Uh, you can tell that it's, you know, I'm really thinking about this as you're asking me. It's not pre-prepared. <laughs> pre I think that also shows that it's not about where it's published. It's about the fact that it is published and out there for the public to read that is more important. Yeah. I, in some ways it does matter, right? It matters for, for metrics and for yeah. careers, but it also, I think, we don't have the right metrics to measure non-traditional careers yet. And, and the other aspect is that, I mean, the Crick makes, is able to make everything that it publishes open access which is fantastic, but really there should be a big push towards everything being open access. Which I think there is uh, across, certainly yeah. across Europe. Yeah. UK. Uh, I think collectively, I think it's, it's not just a UK thing, it's a very European initiative uh, towards that. And actually, I, I'm also aware that you're also quite passionate about Europe in general. <laughs> uh, I know what's coming. I, actually, I'm struggling to find the image. <laughs> ah, drat. There you go. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so, probably not the one you were expecting to see. No, but I love that. So I, I feel like, so that's... Um, uh, this, but, what, what does it say on the poster? It says, and we wonder why we never get any votes at Eurovision. <laughs> yeah, I think that sums you up twice over. There's two important exactly. messages in this. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, a banner. We... I feel like I've spent the last three years going on anti-Brexit marches um, and I have a nice banner in my office as well saying science needs EU, science needs you. Um, but of course, yeah, I, we do love the Eurovision. I mean, it's, it's kind of a British tradition that you have a cheesy party for Eurovision where everybody brings <clears throat> food that is a pun on the different countries that it comes from. Um, no, I, I wouldn't say that's everyone, Lucy. I, I would say you are. Uh, I would. I wouldn't say. I've got to be careful how I word this. Uh huh. Yeah, be, be careful. <laughs> yes, you are. You, you are a Eurovision uh, fanatic. <laughs> I would argue at, at this point. Well, it doesn't hurt that it's around my birthday every year. So, so, did so, this was a memorable birthday? I think. Yeah, that was a big birthday. And uh, the year before, we had our usual Eurovision party and somebody said, well, because it's your big birthday next year, then we should actually go to Eurovision, wherever it ends up being. And it was a close call between Copenhagen and Azerbaijan. 
and uh, we ended up in Copenhagen and it was it's a great way to see European cities with a bit of cheesy music <laughs> and am I correcting that you have a Terry Wogan dress well you might think that from our Twitter feed <laughs> um, so in lockdown we have we've had lab coffees and um, we have a different theme every day so of course for for my birthday in Eurovision we had Eurovision theme and I didn't have a green screen and my my background wasn't working so I had to hang a green dress in the background and Terry Wogan's face was was on it because uh, for us in the UK Terry Terry is Eurovision all <laughs> <coughs> hail Sir Terry oh Graham Norton's not so bad oh Graham's great as well but you know I, I grew up in the era of Terry that's important actually so your team obviously mean a lot to you obviously we saw them with hard hats earlier uh, but actually I, I looked at this photo <laughs> I think the photo I have now is of your lab on the last day before lockdown I was the the last kind of big lab training event that's you know they're all having so much fun there um, so this was in preparation for the Zeiss 3D EMLM meeting that we were holding at the Crick, supposed to hold at the Crick in March. And we had to take the difficult decision to, to cancel it or postpone it. And it was before we really knew whether we were going to have to go into lockdown as well. Um, but Zeiss had shipped um, an SEM on site and they were all learning how to use STEM detectors and, um, and use the array tomography software. and they're having so much fun kind of makes me a bit sad that I wasn't there I don't get on a microscope very much anymore right. um, but they're such a talented group of guys you know if I if I can't get on a microscope then the fact that every week we catch up and they show me this insanely cool data and reconstructions and analysis is it makes me happy which is good and obviously this isn't your home lab your, your, your lab is actually this this cuts people out at the edges obviously a lot larger yeah. if you think about your postdoc lab and Colin Hopkins was a great scientist look at the lab that you had here the size of your own lab is significant it is right. now yeah it is now yeah it, it I get in what 2004 it was just me and it's been a very gradual build-up over <laughs> the years like as yeah. the size of the institute has grown you need more people and as I guess as you as the technology develops and as you show what it can do, then more people want to use it. So, I, I think, do you know, I, I, again, I have a picture of you and I haven't got it downloaded for some reason, which is frustrating because you'll know what it was going to be of. I think when you, I started similarly, there was myself and there was Meg, who's uh, my electron microscopy specialist, and the lab grew and grew and grew. And I think we were both very fortunate that our timing of coming into core facilities is when core facilities started to come into being. But also the technologies that we were involved with were very much in vogue and in fashion and were very successful to develop. But to develop the lab, you really had to, you know, it's, it is very, a good analogy, it is like surfing and you have to surf the wave successfully to get there. Uh, and I, I don't have the picture, but I noticed behind you, uh, is probably from one of your holidays, Newquay or similar? Uh, Polzeth. Okay. Because Polzeth you're... In the, the north coast of Cornwall. I'll, I don't know if I can pull up the, uh, the photo. So out of work itself, uh, you know, it's a big team to manage. I'm sure lockdown... Oh, look at that. 
that's the other yeah. side of me. Can we go sideways on it? Yeah. And look at it? I'm, not, I'm not sure why I'm on the side, although I have to say when I surf, you know, I love surfing and I talk about surfing a lot and every holiday is a surfing holiday. But that gives the false impression that I can surf and I can't. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't start till my early 30s and I've never been sporty. And it's not about that at all. It's just about the feeling of being in the sea. And when you're getting slapped around the face from both sides by a wave, and I don't even know how that's possible, but you can't think about work. And even if there's no waves, you can float in the middle of the, the sea. And, um, you know, you've just got the sun and the air. The, air smells a lot better than it does in London and it's yeah it's great and look at look at the view it's so beautiful and the salty water and the cold and the <laughs> I'm not getting it at all I'm just <laughs> yeah I mean I, I didn't like the sea before I started surfing and there was no way that anyone was getting me in a wetsuit because just look at them and then one day I tried it and and the first day you have a lesson most people make some attempt at standing up and most people get hooked so um we have we have lots of group holidays down to the north coast of cornwall and actually there's quite a high proportion of electron microscopists on those holidays i have to say not surfing yeah okay go figure go figure it's because we're locked in basements most of the year in the dark so every now and again we get less out and we go crazy <laughs> Yeah, you get wiped out instead of blacked out, I guess, on the uh, microscope. <laughs> uh, so, so back to you, so, so you, you have successfully surfed that wave, uh, career-wise. But how have you found actually challenging? The first picture I showed, you mentioned the Terry Wogan dress, but you've kept your lab fairly well engaged throughout lockdown. And I, I remember on Twitter, actually, from Martin, I think it was Martin Jones who actually tweeted this, this was a very scary image of you, I think. <laughs> okay, so this one, so, so the idea for themes. So I, you're not really home alone though. <laughs> no, this one was the scream. I think it was probably like week three or week four of lockdown and everybody was having a real dip. So um, half of the lab had the, the scream, the painting as a background, and half of us had the home alone. Um, and we were, we were doing the, the scream. And then um, an unnamed person in the lab took that and ran with it, literally. And um, I think that unnamed person is probably Martin. <laughs> but there's now a whole Twitter feed called uh, hashtag Lucy running away from things. But there's all <laughs> sorts of backgrounds. I, yeah. I, th I think ultimately you, you enjoy virtually dressing up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love it. It makes me laugh, and I think if there's if there's anything we need right now, it's uh, having a good laugh. And yeah, I think now and again they come up. I've been chased by the the ghost from Ghostbusters and Teletubbies and um, giant haystacks, the wrestler, and all sorts. So, right, whoever it is, I encourage them to continue. Yeah, I think good for team morale as well. Uh, yeah. So you've obviously been doing a good job from that perspective. Uh, I, it, there was one picture that you sent me, which I was very intrigued by, which is actually a picture of an aeroplane and the distance of you on the aeroplane to McDonald's for, uh, for chicken nuggets. Yeah, you might have to go the other way so that... There's see. a plane. Okay, yeah, so there's me on the aeroplane. So my brother loves aeroplanes and he, he follows my travels around the world on flight radar every now and again. 
not the whole time that would be weird right um but he he knows which Wait, do you travel I'm, a lot <laughs> he knows which plane i'm flying on and whether it's on time and and it got to the point where he was texting me before just before landing so when i turned my phone back on i'd have a message saying welcome to wherever so that one is frankfurt and i think i'd arrived quite late and he thought i might be hungry so he's uh He's pointed out the nearest chicken nuggets in McDonald's, <laughs> which I think was the, the only restaurant labelled on there, to be fair. So you're not a big McDonald's fan? Do you know that I have been known to have a McDonald's in Frankfurt Airport on the way home? Yeah, I, I think I've done similar. They've also uh, they've got Hagen Dance as well in there. So I, I kind of actually their waffles there were quite good. <laughs> uh, that's usually where you say it's actually it's moved last year it's moved so I, I i no longer get that when i go there the irony being we're both quite foodie aren't we so uh, i like that we're talking about mcdonald's yeah I, i'm not so fussy though <laughs> <laughs> i i think I, I i do enjoy mcdonald's occasionally too often the right amount so god here god some quick fire questions then and we're going to start with food eating okay. Or eat out? Ooh, uh, depends on the day. If it's the weekend, eat out during the week. Cook That's at home. Great quick fire answer, that one, Lucy. <laughs> That's quick. <laughs> okay. Cook or wash up? Cook. Cook. Have you ever told Chris that? <laughs> so we have a friend called Chris Gerin. Yeah. Uh, a common friend who we, we both uh, know very well. And when he ever visits, he'll always cook. That that's yeah. his big thing is cooking. I mean, he's he's been a chef. His his cooking is insanely good. And he came down to Polzeth with us uh, last November. We took him on a nice beach holiday, and we actually stayed on a place on the beach. And it was gale force winds for four days. The poor guy. And um, but he cooked us some incredible food. So always try and take Chris with you on holiday. But but you still rather cook than wash up when he's there. No, I'd rather he cooks. I'll wash okay. up because he will be listening to this <laughs> you have to be careful okay beach bum or sightseeing quick answer <laughs> well i'm gonna have to say beach bum because the surfing okay tidy or messy mm, messy tea or coffee coffee book or tv tv okay stay at home or go to work oh I don't have much choice at the moment. I go go to work. But if you'd asked me when I was at work every day, I would have said stayed at home. <laughs> Gross, how, always how is Ian going to take that then? You prefer to be at work. Yeah, I think he quite liked me out of the house now. It's been, what, three months? <laughs> so, so you miss him when you're at work and when you're at home, you obviously want away. <laughs> Yeah, get yourself into trouble with that. So TV, so so you prefer TV over books? I, I I would concur with that. But so what's your what are you into at the moment TV wise? Um, well, my favourite is Spooks, which if anyone hasn't seen it was a a series about MI five, MI five not nine to five, um, and it was kind of I guess it was around the time that twenty four was on as well so it was it was very british but it, it was the first one that had that really tech feel um that would be my go-to i am trying to read 
but it's I don't know it's hard to concentrate I think with work and with Twitter and with everything being so so quick and is this still the quick fire round because I'm no 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 don't worry <laughs> <laughs> I've got you so I've got you into trouble with the other half so I'm quite happy to stop there <laughs> uh, uh, yeah and if you've got young children don't watch spooks with them no especially not the first episode correct yes yeah, yeah. Come with warning yes I, I remember that you know that's one of the few vivid moments of tv i remember watching that scene and thinking oh my goodness it was a big actress as well yeah and well that they were one of the first that i remember that quite happily killed off major characters yes. and did it frequently yeah was that first episode really on a friday <laughs> there's a good pun in there for anyone um, who's watched that first first um, episode of spooks and I have to say that because we've had a couple of master's students from your course in York and, and both of them have been really excellent punners. So, you know, you're not only teaching them <laughs> microscopy, but you're also making sure that they go out into the world able to pun. That's Catherine and Charlotte, I think, both came down to you, didn't they? And yeah. Catherine's now working for you as well. Yeah, Catherine went over to Graham Knott's lab in Switzerland yeah. and then we managed to, to get her back and she's fantastic. She's working on projects and helping Rafa with uh, operations. Um, and Charlotte is now in Oxford. Um, so she did a PhD in, in Leiden. So it's one of the really nice things about science that you don't get until you're a bit, um, I don't think I can say older, can I? Maybe later career when you start seeing your kind of lab kids go off and do their thing and then build their careers and come back again. And that's very cool. Yeah. I, I think, I think maybe that is not common of all core facilities that we have had students come in and then carry on their career around the technology rather than again, rather than the typical academic route. And both of those students were master's students at the time and they're meant to be trained to go into our type of roles or similar in industry. And I think masters is uh, not always commonly thought of as a good degree compared to a PhD, but actually it equips them really, really well. And in Charlotte's case, she's obviously gone on beyond that anyway, but they can still forge very high profile careers yeah. uh, and specialise in that technology. It's a very different route, but still needs that high degree of expertise and specialisms, just as you would in an academic career. Uh, I think you've got two excellent examples there, but, but you, you helped inspire them significantly once they went down. I think that was the London Research Institute at the time that you were at. Yeah, it was Cancer Research UK, and they, they were both paired up with um, the postdocs in the lab, uh, yeah. with Chris and, and others, so they were learning directly hands-on from some really great electron microscopists. Which is fantastic. I'm going to just turning back to science itself, and we've talked about where you started, where you've got to. What's the greatest challenges that lies ahead? Where's the unmet need that we need to see developed? What's going to really drive microscopy forward in your area in the future that isn't possible today? Um, the automated image analysis. So that's where we're devoting a lot of our development time now. Um, it's partly the citizen science, it's partly deep learning. Um, a lot of it is, I guess, things like New Bias, which is a European network of image analysts building up the career structures um, and, and producing more people to come and work in, in facilities and in, in research groups to develop it. Um, 
places like EMBL EBI, uh, the European Bioinformatics Institute, who have the public archives where we're starting to deposit our data so that um, image analysts and other scientists can remine it. That goes to open science again. I think there's a huge amount that needs to be done in that area to really equip everybody to be able to collect your big data, whatever it is, whether it's uh, volume EM or light sheet or spatial omics or x-ray microscopy, you collect it in 24 hours and 24 hours later you have whatever you need to quantify in volume EM, that's going to be 3D models um, of organelles or of neurons um, and some way to quantify them in other domains. It might include time as well, but and high throughput, which needs automation. So EM has never been high throughput, but you're starting to see um, kind of the, the first big data coming through fast and places like EMBL and Yannick, Yannick Schwab's lab are really pushing that kind of high throughput work that will make the data significant as well. I was thinking when you said about the analysis and the high throughput analysis, as soon as that comes to be, we then need the high throughput of the data. It's where the bottlenecks exist, I guess, at the moment. Does it not frustrate you that deep learning and computers cannot easily render our images? It's it doesn't frustrate me. Um, I think if they could, we'd have to worry a bit because we might have reached the singularity. <laughs> So it doesn't frustrate me. I think it's really exciting that there's the potential that we can teach computers to, to do some of that heavy lifting for us. And actually, um, we've had two sandwich students in a row, um, Harry and Daniel, who come from a computing background. And these are un undergraduates. And these are the guys who are, who are really doing some heavy lifting on the machine learning side. And it's just a, a new generation with different expertise. And when you, when you get them working across disciplines with biologists and microscopists, it's really exciting. Yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got someone uh, from maths, compute science, working as a PhD in the lab at the moment. And I guess my frustration is I don't know the work as well as they know the work. Yeah. and so it's hard for me to understand their bottlenecks their problems they're encountering because conceptually it's really easy yeah but obviously it's not because no one's solved it nope. and i guess i feel out of my depth or inadequate in my knowledge base not i can't advise them particularly well we've got obviously another supervisor who's expert in that area and i think that side frustrates me and maybe more frustration of myself that I expect great things and I think it should be easy to solve and I appreciate it isn't but it should be <laughs> Why isn't it? you need a translator um, <laughs> and as well as you know running the research pro programs in microscopy prototyping Martin is basically my translator for hardware software design engineering machine learning and it's fiendishly difficult it can take years to not learn another topic but learn how to communicate with somebody on that other topic and he's extremely patient he's you know he's the person who's got me twitter enabled and i even know what a jupiter notebook is now and i've done a, a kind of a zero to hero python 
training, uh, which is a fantastic course if anybody wants to do it. Um, but I'm never going to be an expert in coding. You just need need to know enough that you can communicate, and you all need to, you know, bring your expertise to bear to get to what you need for the the research. I, I think that's very good advice, actually, uh, and I would completely agree. And actually, my students and the Judy Wilson, who I collaborate over in maths, are very patient with ourselves. <clears throat> and they do explain things very clearly. It's just when I leave the meeting, I, I lose some of that information. <laughs> I think they have to keep me teaching me quite often. because It's just not instinctive to me at all. Well, it's very diff different. Somebody explaining something simply to you and you understanding it. That's very different to being able to then go and explain it to somebody else in the same way. I think the tolerance goes both ways because we have to explain what is quite simple to us, as, but as they're not biologists, not microscopists, hardcore. Uh, again, I think, I think it goes both ways. Yeah, and biology is messy, right? Much messier than physics and maths. And that's, I think, the thing that people from the other side have to get to grips with. Yeah, I, I, and chemistry also. Uh, yeah, I, I guess if you add A to B, you get C. Yeah. Often, and it's repeatable. Yeah. Whereas biology, the heterogeneity means that very, you'll never get the same result twice. Yeah. Trends, but not the same. Well, look, think about your nuclei. Not, they're never going to look the same, are they? Each one is going to be completely unique, even if it's from the same cell type. In fact, the same cell, seconds later, yeah. Would be different. Yeah. And you need a lot of data to start spotting the patterns. That heterogeneity uh, does make biology very, very difficult. And why it's so expensive. Yeah. You but know? it's you know, it's a problem that's been overcome largely in in the omics. It's just that imaging isn't there yet. No, but I, I guess it's the omics and coupling to that that's a big route forward as well in the future. So before we finish off, I'd like to ask you about what's been the best time of your career? What, what period of your career have you most enjoyed? Good question. <laughs> I, think, I think now, because... It's every second, because you're loving the interview so much. <laughs> right now. Right oh. now, you're doing such a good job, Pete. <laughs> no, I think, <laughs> you know, for a long time it's a struggle, because everybody seems to know everything and you don't know everything and you think that you should know everything and it's only once you've done it for 20 years or more and you've collaborated with people and you've picked up stuff from different subject areas and it's only when you learn all of the stuff especially in biology that that it starts to all come together and you can you suddenly realise that you're you're there and you you know what's missing in your field and you know what you want to do with it and you can have conversations with different people in biology or in maths or in computing or in physics and and I think for me the fun bit is when you well when you see the data that the guys in the lab are collecting but when you have that network and you can start putting together really big scale ideas that could really make a difference to science on a, a much bigger level uh, so i guess all that comes with confidence yeah which takes a long time to build up uh, how confident are you now when you do your when, when you invited to give a keynote 
a plenary talk at a big conference. Do you still get nervous or are you now a lot more relaxed and confident with it? A little bit, but though, you know, yeah, I used to feel sick for a week before a talk when I was doing my PhD and my postdoc and for a long time. And now it's, it's one of the things that I enjoy the most, actually. And um, I think <clears> just keep stuff, doing stuff, if you don't, if, if it makes you nervous or you don't enjoy it, you just have to keep doing it. And eventually... You, you get better at it and then you get a bit of confidence. I guess a lot of people always worry there's people in the audience that know more than you know about the subject uh, yeah. or might ask a difficult question. But I, I, I don't think I've ever encountered a really, uh, I'm going to set myself up now for the next time I give a webinar or conference. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a really difficult question that I should have known the answer to, but didn't know the answer to. Because I think it's fine not to know the answer for a question. Yeah. And just to say, I'm not the expert there and yeah. ask the audience or come back and I'll find the answer out. Yeah, it's okay not to know as long as you say you don't know. Do you only get into trouble if you start to wing it and uh, <laughs> make it up? Because there will be somebody in the audience who does know. You can, you can bet on that. Yeah, no, better in this very specific area, but probably for the whole content of the talk, probably not. Yeah, it's like when you do your your viva, your thesis viva, right? You're you're the person who knows that work best. So, again, just some slight bits, some of the pros, some of the uh, perks, maybe, of the job. (laughs) So you sent me through this picture, which is of you talking to Sadiq Khan, is it? Yep. The mayor of London. Yep. Uh, he's about to take part in our citizen science project so the, the screen on the left just above your head has etchesel on it um that was the beginning of london tech week and he was fantastic he didn't have long at the crick but he he came over to the screen and he actually he segmented an, an entire nuclear envelope in in one of the images and it, so is he co-authored or acknowledged on the publication when it comes out well we have um we have our volunteers as co-authors, so there's, um, I think they're called Zooniverse volunteers in the author list, and then it will point towards a list of everybody um, who's contributed on the project. So it's really important to acknowledge everybody. Again, it's very non-traditional science. So he's going to be acknowledged, you're going to have Sadiq Khan as a co-author? <laughs> Not specifically, he should be in the list with all of the other volunteers. I'm okay. sure you wouldn't so- want to him out about this one which <laughs> is now you with the queen tell me you got her to do it and you can go off the, you can put her in the list as well go on we did we didn't know no that was before the citizen science project launched i think so that was the opening the official opening of the crick and my name got drawn out of the hat to be one of the people who who met her in person and introduced her to other people and i i just love that we've coordinated our addresses there. Now, I was thinking so you met Sadiq Khan, you've uh, met the Queen, I, I think you gave a big new scientist talk I believe I as did. well. Yeah. So you do all these gigs so that means you get to buy dresses how often? <laughs> well you know like shopping. <laughs> <laughs> but, but not at the moment obviously. At the moment no. No, I mean, this is, this is the most dressed up I've been for three months, I have to be honest. Except for virtually, in which point you've been dressed up in all sorts of different outfits. Yeah, 
That's <laughs> the virtual side. I, I say we're coming towards the end now. So I'm going to ask one last question. Any advice that you would give to someone starting out in their career? Um, another good question. Um, I think follow what you enjoy doing. I mean, nobody, nobody in primary school says I want to be an electron microscopist, do they? <laughs> so, I hope not. I got. I mean, maybe they do now, right? Then maybe they know about it because of etches. Um, syllabus, certainly for A yeah. levels. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And have. we've done a bit of teaching of teachers, but I think do what do what you find really interesting and and you're passionate about, and it may be that you you only need know a little bit of that so at school I liked biology so I did a biology degree and then I liked the biology degree and I I quite liked small things so I did microbiology for my PhD and and I there wasn't a grand plan and I didn't know where things were going to lead you have to you develop a gut feeling for which opportunities you should take and who are good people to collaborate with so and, and don't feel like you should know everything too early on you have to spend a lot of time in science learning before you, you get to the point where you can really know what you want to do. And I think that's sound advice. It is just following what you're good at and the opportunities. Again, back to surfing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you might get back to sooner than later. Yeah, don't worry about the failures as well. You will fail as part of your career and you will fail to stand up on a surfboard, but it doesn't mean that you, know, you learn from it. <laughs> this is very deep, isn't it? You do learn from it and it, I think it makes you a bit more chilled. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. I, I'm going to caveat what you just said there before we end, because if your true surfing skills are what that you say they are, yeah. i.e. pretty useless, yeah. career-wise, it might be better to find a different hobby <laughs> <laughs> from a career perspective. Okay. Fall off, but if you keep falling off the same surfboard, maybe, maybe it's time to choose a different career path. That's why we only surf places that are shallow with a sandy bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note Lucy thank you so much for joining me today it's been uh, I would say enlightening but that, that would suggest light and it's uh, been electronifying maybe would be a better right. one to end on I'm going to put that phrase in my next grant application <laughs> cool Lucy thank, thank you. you very much thank you thank you for listening to The Microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy to view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.